and, you know, it's really kind of too late, you know, a week later to, to fix it entirely, but I did want to address it. So my apologies to you for that. Let's go ahead and stand, please. Exodus chapter 20. And verses 1 through 11 are our passage this morning. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth, the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, and rested on the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And we will stop there this morning for our portion and let's pray. Father, as always, it is our prayer, my prayer, that I would faithfully and accurately communicate your word to your people that we would receive it as it is God's word to us, that we would appreciate both the encouragements it offers and the chastisements it delivers. Thank you for a very great salvation and help us to genuinely appreciate it. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Well, I'm just kind of orienting our Sunday mornings here for the next bit around a statement that Paul made in 2 Corinthians 5 that having been saved by Christ, we are no longer supposed to live for ourselves, but for him that died for us. And Paul goes on to explain that this part of the conclusion is to realize the all-encompassing love of God. The love of Christ constrains us. Jesus' love for him was, without over-sentimentalizing it, was like a hug that brought him in and oriented his life. Living for him is embodied in the Ten Commandments. What would it like to live a life that is not for me, but is for him? And so what I wish to do this morning is to survey these first four commands. 
the first table of the law and to look at the demands they levy. levy. David said in the 119th Psalm that God's commandments are exceeding broad. They cover everything. There is no part of life, no word, no conduct, no ambition, no intent, no time that they do not touch. One commentator called these four commandments a bouquet of God-centered attributes. And again, we will survey them this morning primarily, if I may tip my hand a little early, primarily the first three. But we will touch upon all four. So let's begin. Well, let's wait for the computer to get done and we will begin. Here is the first. Have only one God. Have only one God. Verse number three. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. We all hear, rightly so, if they're handled right, we all hear many sermons about putting God first, about having our priorities right. I would consent to all of that and agree to all of that, but that is not what is being said here. This is not a verse about priorities. This is not a verse about putting God at the beginning of the day and everything will go great for the remainder of the day. This is a command to have no other God but Jehovah in his sight. If you wanted to be technical, in his face. But since there is no place, folks, that God cannot see, then there is no room anywhere for there to be any other God. Nothing is hid from him. David said, where can I go to flee from your presence? Where can I go to get away from your face? Every place I go, you see. Thou shalt have no other God before my face. If I can do this, let's just take a second and address the obvious. What is a God? What is a God? And again, at the risk of insulting you, which is not my intention, you're pretty well versed in the Bible, but please note carefully what God says in verse number 2, or verses 1 through 3. And God, that is the word Elohim, and God, and Elohim spake all these words saying, I am the Lord. I am Jehovah, thy God. Elohim said, I am Jehovah, thy Elohim, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods, Elohim, before me. And I assure you that I'm not trying to impress you with my limited knowledge of the Hebrew language. But to make a very important distinction here, the word Elohim, singular or plural in its form, is used over 2,600 times in the Old Testament. Sometimes it refers to Jehovah as it is here. 
In Genesis 35, 2, it is used to describe physical statues, strange gods, alien Elohim. In Exodus chapter 7 and verse number 1, Jehovah said that he was going to make Moses an Elohim to Pharaoh. I'm going to make him a god to you. The man who believed that he was a god was about to meet another god, Moses. Sometimes the word is used to describe simple civil power. In Exodus 21.6, under the law, then his master shall bring him to the judges, to the Elohim. To the ones with power is the idea. To the ones with power. The word God is a word that refers to strength or power. What is a God? This is really important, folks. This is not just semantics in wordplay. Let me suggest to you that an Elohim is something that demonstrates power along at least three lines. An Elohim provides protection. An Elohim provides protection. The Lord is our rock. He is our shield. An Elohim provides provision. An Elohim gives you something. And an Elohim gives you pleasure. This is one of the greatest challenges for humanity in general and even God's people is to find pleasure in the Lord. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So if you'll think about it, because this is the way God wants us to think about it, if you will think about that word Elohim, something that will protect you and will provide for you and will please you, and then you will narrow that funnel down to one. I am Jehovah. I am Jehovah. I am your Elohim. You will have no other Elohim in my, in my face. You will have no other Elohim in my face. Jehovah has many, many competitors. We ourselves, folks, compete to be the Elohim in his place. I'll take care of myself. I'll take care of myself. Thou shalt have no other Elohim in my presence have only one God secondly have only one worship have only one worship verses 4 through 6 thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. 
For I, the Lord Jehovah, thy God Elohim, am a jealous Elohim, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And in contrast to that, showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Have only one God, have only one worship. If you think of it this way, folks, verse number three is absolutely 100% positively true. But it is also rather abstract. What does it mean to have no other God? How would you know if you had no other God? How would we know if there was something that God saw with his sight and God looked at that and said, now that is a problem to me because that is in competition with me. And you're not allowed to compete with me. I'm the only God. And that is where, folks, the second commandment comes in. Because the second commandment is not at all abstract. It is concrete, physical, tangible, visible. If God functions to me, if Jehovah functions to me as an Elohim, if he is a provider... then I am going to, number one, respond in some way to that provision. Or I am going to, in some way, view him as the provider of that provision, or that protection, or that pleasure. There is going to be some interaction between me and whatever I worship. There is going to be some very real expression of that. And this is one of the reasons that we are not command or not permitted to make any image. Is because any image that we make fails to catch reality, then that is that God transcends all that He created. I mentioned this, I think, last Sunday night. We will no doubt again look at it. We've been talking much in the Old Test about the Old Testament temple and tabernacle. The Physical representation of the dwelling place of God. Where's God? He's at the temple. He's in the ark. And yet Solomon, in his best days at the inauguration of the temple, acknowledged the fact that God could not be confined to a building. He transcends buildings. God is here. We know that God is here today. Jesus said when two or more gathered in his name, he was there but he's more than the building. God is in us who believe. But he is far more than what he is in us. To reduce God to some kind of image, Paul talks about this, is a terrible insult to him. To think that he is like a winged creature or a four-footed beast. That all that he is can be embodied in a picture or an image or a statue. This doesn't stop men from trying. But I would call your attention to verse number 5 of our text. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, covering all the bases. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity. Folks, almost always when you read that word iniquity, it is not just describing sin in general, but a particular kind of sin And the particular kind of sin that it is describing is willful sin. I know that I shouldn't do this and I'm doing it anyway. 
I know that God has set a boundary, but I'm climbing that fence. I know that God has said no, but I say yes. Iniquity. I'm telling you not to bow down to other images. I'm telling you not to serve other images. And having told you not to do that, if you do it, it is not just any old sin. It is iniquity. It is willful disobedience. Now the question then becomes, again, how would you know if you have only one God? How would you know? How would I know? And again, I would call your attention to verse number 5. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them. Well, I don't do that. I'm going to guess probably that none of us do that. But you'll notice that the Lord doesn't stop there because he goes on to get right to the heart of the matter and that is to serve them. To serve them. So that have one God is the command and have one worship is the command in application. Don't have a substitute for me. Don't give yourself to something that takes my place. And I just want, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick a very specific illustration in part, folks, because it's probably the easiest one to make and I think it's probably God's biggest competitor, realistically. Right, the violation of the second command is what we call idolatry. Don't make images. Don't make graven images. Don't make representations. Don't worship idols. Idolatry is not simply an Old Testament sin. It is a New Testament sin. Colossians 3.5 tells me that covetousness is idolatry. Although there is no statue involved. There's, and I'm not trying to be funny, I'm just trying to think, and I always get in trouble when I'm trying to do something in the spur of the moment off the top of my head, but I'm unaware of any meme or image that is the representation of covetous. Whose belly you would rub, or to whom you would offer incense, and yet covetousness is a form of idolatry, an expression of idolatry. The substance of the activity is the same. It is to replace Jehovah as a provider to be dissatisfied with his provision, to seek a provision that he hasn't provided. In 1 John 5.21, John tells us to keep ourselves from idols. Paul went even further and told us to stay away from things that are offered to idols. A sentiment that is repeated in the book of Revelation. What did we do wrong? Lord, what did, what, why are you mad at us? We, you ate something that was offered to an idol. That's why I'm mad.
So let me just try and give us a bit of an example of, again, what is a big one because it's pretty visible and because it's pretty prevalent. No other God but Jehovah. Only one God. No graven image. No idolatry. Only one worship. So here is the God who has created for us life. And all that we need on this earth. Water. Food. Air. Heat. It is all from him. So how does God provide for you in this world, folks? How does he provide for you? Well, I would point out, first of all, that he provides it for us by providing the very raw materials, does he not? Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians that we are to give thanks because the earth is the Lord's and its fullness. So I would point out to you that God made cows, but then I would also point out to you that he didn't make steaks. And that God made wheat, but he doesn't make bread. So one of the ways that God provides for me is by providing for me the raw materials of life. And another way that God provides for me is by providing for me the economic mental resources to convert raw materials into usable materials. And the word that we usually use to describe that, folks, is the word labor. How does God feed his children? Well, the rain falls from the sky and the snow falls from the sky and the sun shines from the sky and the soil is nourished and the crops grow and the animals reproduce and all of the raw materials are there, God's creation. And then God says to us, now go work. Go work. Butcher cattle. Plant wheat. Harvest it. Grind it. Bake it. Eat it. Then God says to me, or at least Jesus said, ask me for it. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. I would point out, folks, that one is not a substitute for the other. I don't just pray for food and spend 20 hours a day praying for food and four hours a day sleeping. Because God has said, I want you to work for food too. And then folks, here's where it starts to get really tricky because most Christians don't have any problem with working or praying. But they have a huge problem with giving. But giving back to God out of what he has given is a huge part of the material success program that God has inaugurated. It just is. That's not just a cranky Baptist pastor going after your wallet. Honor the Lord with thy substance. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty. 
God will ask the question several times in the Old Testament. He will tie their poverty to their absence of generosity. That's part of God's program as well. Now it's a little more comprehensive than that because we are to honor the Lord with our substance, which is not just the tithe. You could argue that it's equally wasteful to give God a generous portion and then squander the rest. Let me just read to you quickly from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, which is a passage about giving to help others, right? Honesty demands that. It's not the normal, regular, I would argue, obligatory gift of the tithe. But this I say, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, because here's the principle. He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth the cheerful giver. A man who recognizes how this works, I think, is really the, the heart of the idea. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you. Which is where the rub of faith really comes in, right? Because many people approach giving with a zero-sum mentality. That if I give some, then that's gone forever and I'll never get it back. And yet the Bible is very clear. God is able to make all grace abound toward you. That ye having, always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, God. God, God feeds the farmer. Both minister bread for your food and multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness being enriched in everything to all bountifulness which causeth through us thanksgiving to God for the administration of this service not only applieth the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. Giving is not only part of the process of getting from God, folks, but also it is the response. Why was giving mandatory under the law? It was an act of worship. Why is it mandatory under the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 9? It's an act of worship. And to fail to honor it, folks, is nothing other than an act of idolatry. No, I will, I will take care of this my own way. It's mine, it's me, I will take care of this my own way. It is not building a statue and calling it, this is my absence of faith statue, but it is in practice the very same thing. Now, that is not the only place. I would argue, maybe should have argued, certainly could argue, that our physical sexual purity is another place of the same importance and often and violated probably just as often. Paul taught us in 1 Thessalonians 4 to possess our bodies in sexual purity, not in that King James expression, lust of concupiscence, which means evil desire, which is the same exact word used in Colossians 3.5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon earth, uncleanness, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness. 
which is idolatry. Unfortunately, folks, there are lots of ways to be an idolater, and we are good at all of them. I made mention this morning of John Calvin in Sunday school. John Calvin said the human heart was an idol factory. We make our little images. We put them in God's place. We give to them our service. You will provide for me. You will please me. You will protect me. Solomon said money is a defense. So back to the text. Four commandments have only one God. Secondly, have only one worship. Thirdly, have only one word about that God. Verse number seven. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. The word take there, right, means actually to lift up or to hold out. Thou shalt not put God's name out there in vanity. It is a word with a tremendous amount of meaning in the Hebrew vocabulary. Empty. Falsely. Uselessly. You will not use God's name casually. You will not put God's name out casually. And this is not simply a matter of trivia or semantics or splitting hairs with words. The Lord will not hold him guiltless. Folks, the command is very clear that God's name is never to be used trivially. Never. Never, ever, ever, ever. Now this certainly then is going to include things like using God's name or God's word as an expression of disdain and contempt. To use the sacred name of God as an exclamation point at our frustration and anger. Equally so, it is prohibiting the invocation of God's name for condemnation. whether it be a person, place, or thing, to proclaim that Jehovah God, the Creator, has damned something because you don't like it. It is certainly going to include things like using God's name as an exclamation point. Oh God. Or a meme or an OMG. But folks, thy commandment is exceeding broad. It means a lot more than that. The prohibition takes us to not connecting God's name to something that he doesn't do or wouldn't support. To take God's name as vain, vain is to claim I'm a Christian and then to have everything about your life, thought process, desire, and appetite be contrary to Christianity. To claim God's name to no purpose. It 
It is taking the Lord's name in vain to claim that something is God's will. When the only evidence in all the world that it is God's will is that it is something that you want to have done. And let me just hasten to add folks, there's nothing wrong with having certain desires that are not sinful and wanting things. Maybe we just need to cultivate the attribute of going, I have that because I wanted it. I'm having, I'm having a conversation in my head about telling a story, but I'm not going to tell it because I always get in trouble when I do. It's personal. It's not about anybody in church. Just personal. Something I did, said to my wife, this is what I did. She did what I expected her to do. She rolled her eyes and said, why would you do that? And I, I honest answer, I wanted to. There's no defense. There's no defense. I just wanted to. I just wanted to do it. Wasn't sinful to do it. I don't think. Just did it. You can ask me about it after church. I'll tell you what it was. It's not anything embarrassing. But folks, to connect the Lord to something that he may not necessarily be connected to or just simply because we would very much like him to be connected to is to encroach into that very dangerous territory of using his name in vain. And I'm going to ask you to come back to Exodus chapter 20, but let me ask you if you would to turn to Matthew chapter 23. And I, I just want to take a minute and try and establish the point here that I am not going off on a rabbit trail or a tangent that cannot be proven. Matthew chapter 23. And I'm going to start in verse number 16. Woe unto you, Matthew 23, 16. Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it's nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, it is, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold. And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever but sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. Ye fools and blind. Whether it's greater the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. Wherefore, whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it and by all things thereon. And whoso shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that shall swear by heaven sweareth by the throne of God and by him that sitteth thereon. So here's how Jesus saw it. If it has anything to do with God and you claim it, it's God's. If it has anything to do with God's, it belongs to God. I can't swear by the temple because it's not my temple. I can't swear by the altar because it's not my altar, it's his. So you see, folks, how important the use of things that pertain to God is. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. And it's not that hard, folks. To, right? We just kind of want to make it sometimes very narrow. You know, it's pretty hard to take the Lord's name in vain. You've got to blaspheme the name. But it's not very hard to take his name in vain. It's very easy to take his name in vain. To use it casually, loosely. 
even folks invoking something like heaven. Because it's God's heaven. If it belongs to God, it's God's. And it needs to be thought of reverentially. Sanctify him in your heart, says Peter. So bent back to Exodus. And we will wind this down. Have only one God. Have only one worship. Have only one word. And then if you'll indulge me, verses 8 through 11, have only one wisdom. Verse number 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day of the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now here's the thing, folks, right? We just, this is such a large issue that I am not going to undertake to deal with it at 12.05 on a Sunday morning. My intention is to devote next Sunday morning's entire message to this subject, the subject of the Sabbath. But let me just make a couple of observations about the Sabbath. We tend to gravitate to one of two extremes. There are some people who wish to impose every Old Tabith restriction upon the New Testament church some people even to the point of insisting that we worship on Saturday. And the other certainly more prevalent extreme is a group of people who think that Sunday is just one more day. And that it's probably a good idea to go to church, but after that the whole day belongs to you. Let me note several things about the text again very quickly. God instructs these people not just simply to think, remember the Sabbath, but to act, keep it holy in a certain way. That they were to think rightly so that they would act rightly about the Sabbath. Secondly, God is not being unreasonable with them for he has given them six other days to do everything they need to do. The imposition of the Sabbath, folks, is not a burden upon the people of God. I can't believe that God would do that to me. That is not God's position. God's position is I gave you six days. By the way, without getting all into this, not going to take a lot of time, the word labor is more than just your job. If you want me time, as we would put it, that falls under the six days, not under the seventh. Me time is not Sunday. Six days, get everything else done. That's the gist. Right? In modern language. Six, now, we're going to talk about how much under the Sabbath we are, but let's just for a moment pretend that we are completely under the Sabbath. Do your grocery shopping on Friday. Have me time on Thursday. Everything you need to do, you have six days to get it done. And that seventh day is mine, all mine. All mine. 
And the seventh is his. Now think about this, folks. The seventh is his, verse 11, because of the creation. The seventh is his because of the creation. Now you know, as I know, that the Jews failed to observe the Sabbath pretty much from the get-go. And that even those people who never had one electrically powered instrument, who never had one battery operated instrument, which you have no batteries without electricity, who had no modern conveniences, even those people found the Sabbath day a burden to observe. What did a Jew do on, Sunday, on, on the seventh day? Nothing. He did nothing. Not a thing. That's what he did. Nothing. There was nothing he was, could do. The animals were to stop working. The servants were to stop working. The meals were not to be prepared. Nobody did anything. Note also, folks, that from the creation, from Adam until this very moment in Exodus... Adam and all the people lived in Genesis chapter 5. And then along comes Abraham, 175 years. Along comes Isaac. I remember how long he lived, 125 years. Along comes Jacob, his 140 years. Not one human being has ever observed the Sabbath. Adam didn't observe it. Moses had not observed it. 400 years in Egypt, nobody had observed the Sabbath. Abraham never observed the Sabbath. But now they will observe the Sabbath. And of course, you're aware that part of the thing that drove the Pharisees was their absolute desire to protect the Sabbath, which they did by smothering the spirit of the Sabbath with rules and regulations that even Jesus found odious. Failed to grasp that the Sabbath was never designed to be a burden, they instead turned it into a burden that no man could bear. And here's one of the reasons I call it wisdom, folks, not just for the sake of alliteration. The call to observe, folks, is a call to trust. Only one wisdom. In order to embrace the Sabbath, you've got to trust the God who's giving it to you. You've got to be able to look at the Sabbath through the lens of God. Why are we doing this? Because this is what our Creator instructed. And it is, of course, folks, without going any farther, it is the Sabbath day that is the physical seal of the Mosaic Covenant. It is what made the covenant people the covenant people was the observation of the Sabbath. Which requires us to think carefully and clearly about how we're going to think about the Sabbath because we are not Mosaic Covenant people, but that's next week. Let me just wind this up by pointing this out to you folks. These are God's demands. These four obligations were met by and embraced by and fulfilled perfectly by Jesus Christ who never had any other God 
or any other worship. And all the things that he said about the Father that were inflammatory, they never violated the third command. They were never in vain. When he said, my Father works and I work, connecting them together, he wasn't violating the third command. He was keeping it perfectly. And he did things on the Sabbath and never violated the Sabbath. These are the demands, folks. This is, right? The, the Bible is very clear that the law lays upon us a curse and a burden that is inescapable. Satisfied in the righteousness of Christ in the life that he lived, our Savior. Let's pray. Father.